Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, highlights from the 2018 um, American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, annual meeting. And this is part two of a two-part series. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it really is because of that collaboration that we have so many of you on the call today. Um, and so we have on the call today over 672 participants, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, India, Nigeria, San Domingo, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So really, um, really a bit of a global call today. Now today's program is supported by uh, Gilead, Novartis Oncology, Pfizer, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support. Now we have really the very best speakers on today's program. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is attending physician, thoracic oncology service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris will be addressing updates on the treatment of lung cancer presented at ASCO. It's my great pleasure now to turn the program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Uh, thank you, Carolyn. And uh, thank you to everybody for uh, joining us today. Um, the field of lung cancer uh, has uh, had a uh, absolutely, absolutely amazing uh, year uh, for uh, new treatments and, and changes in, in how we treat this illness. Um, I suffice it to say that virtually every stage of the illness, every type of the illness, uh, has been affected by the development of some new therapies. Uh, many of them were uh, presented at ASCO, some of them at earlier meetings this year, some of them uh, reported in major medical journals, uh, and uh, the, the sum total of it is it's given your doctors many more ways to fight this illness. Um, what I'd like to do is just go back uh, to some basics uh, about uh, how we treat this disease. Um, Step one in, in lung cancer is making the diagnosis, uh, and that is making the diagnosis of cancer. And, and just a reminder, even in 2018, that diagnosis can only be made uh, with a, a tissue biopsy and examination by a pathologist. There is no scan. There is no blood test that can diagnose cancer. Uh, that can still only be done by a pathologist looking at the tissue. The other part of the biopsy, though, uh, is uh, absolutely critical in deciding what's the best therapy for you. Uh, what our uh, pathologists can do is they can do uh, additional testing on the tumor tissue to tell us various types of lung cancers. Uh, and the big three are, are something called adenocarcinoma, that's about 60% of lung cancers, squamous cell lung cancers about 20%, and small cell lung cancers about 50%. Getting this diagnosis uh, is absolutely critical because it helps decide, you know, what's the best uh, chemotherapy drugs to, to use, and I'll, I'll get into that in a little bit. 
What, what has also happened is that there's an additional test that can be done on the tissue along with the testing done by the pathologist to, for the diagnosis and the cell type. And that's a looking for a protein called PDL1. This test can be done uh, virtually anywhere on earth. It doesn't require any additional biopsies. Uh, can be done on the same biopsy specimen uh, that is used to diagnose the cancer. And this test is very important in helping us select uh, whether or not to use a uh, immune checkpoint uh, blocker and immune therapy or how to prioritize immune therapies into the, the treatments that we're going to be recommending. So pretty much everybody gets a uh, PDL1 test. It, it's got various uh, degrees of utility, but pretty much everybody needs this test to help decide therapy with some rare exceptions. Two other tests uh, have uh, gotten to be uh, very important. I think the first is uh, tests on the tumor tissue to look for mutations. And when you look for mutations in the tumor tissue, again, these are not mutations that you've inherited from your mother or your, your dad. They're mutations in the cancer cells. Um, they help determine therapies because cancer cells that have these mutations in them become dependent on the proteins that these mutations uh, uh, create. And by blocking those proteins, cancer cells die. Um, the most common one, many of you may have heard, is like EGFR, ALK is another common one, KRAS. In addition, these modern genetic tests, next generation sequencing, can also look at all the different mutations present in a cancer cell, and they can create a score. Uh, the score is something called tumor mutational burden. Uh, and by the number of mutations found in the cancer, uh, they can also use that information to help us select immune therapies. And there's one more test, and it's a pretty rare one in lung cancer, but it is done routinely now on that same specimen uh, that has the molecular testing. It's something called microsatellite instability. If you find this characteristic microsatellite instability, it would mean that your cancer is much more likely to be susceptible to immune checkpoint blockers. So I know it sounds a little confusing mixing the genetic and the immune, but we get information off those genetic tests that help us uh, select which immune treatment might be best. The next step, uh, and I won't spend a lot of time on this, is determining very accurately where the cancer is in the body. And there are three, you know, it's called staging, TNM staging. Many of you uh, may, may have heard of that already. Uh, it's done really in all cancers. And, and I'll, I'll simplify it into three stages. Um, about 15 or 20% of patients have a cancer that is only in the chest and would be amenable to surgery. So a surgeon would see cancer of this extent and say, yes, it, uh, it can be removed. About another 20 or 25% of patients have cancer in the chest and only in the chest, but it, it can't be removed by surgery. Again, the surgeon would determine that, and those patients generally get radiation. I should add that nowadays, in addition to radiation or surgery, most people get a systemic therapy as well, and I'll, I'll get back to that. And then about 65% of cancers either have cancer that is already spread outside the chest or uh, is a regrowth of cancer after a prior surgery or prior treatment with radiation and chemotherapy. So that's the majority of persons, uh, and, and that those, uh, are, is the largest group of, of patients. Now, for the people that have cancer only in the chest, their, their therapy depends on, on uh, there's two parts of therapy there. One is to effectively treat the cancer that you can see. 
And that can be done either by an aberration or by radiation generally given with the systemic chemotherapy. Um, what also is done nowadays is to give additional therapies to those patients, and that is to combine uh, either medic uh, drugs, standard chemo drugs after or before surgery, and also now after simultaneous chemo and radiation used to treat the locally advanced cancers, we routinely add in an immune checkpoint blocker, and the one that's most commonly used is Dravalumab. This is a very uh, recent development, and now virtually every patient whose cancer is initially treated with chemotherapy and radiation simultaneously go on to get Dravalumab for about a year of therapy. And this is a, um, a development that's happened in the last few months, and it's now become a standard of care. Um, the vast majority of patients, though, do not have cancer that's, that's localized to the chest, and the mainstay of their treatment is a systemic therapy. We have a range of systemic therapies in general. We have the traditional cell-killing chemotherapy, cytotoxic chemotherapy, uh, and the big names there are cisocarboplatin, pemetrexid, uh, gemcitabine. We have drugs that block angiogenesis, and those drugs, bevacizumab and ramucirumab. We have drugs that attack the, uh, that drev up the immune system, and the most common drugs there are atezolizumab, nivolumab, uh, and pembrolizumab. We have targeted therapies, uh, uh, and these therapies are chosen based on the presence of a mutation or a specific genetic defect in the cancer, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the results of the, uh, Genetic testing that's done on the tumor specimen determines these drugs, and there have been some, some changes there, there as well. And the, and the last thing that we have uh, for all patients with all stages of cancer are clinical trials. And I urge you to ask your caregiver, is there a clinical trial that is available to me and would be relevant to me? Uh, Sometimes people think that clinical trials are only given for advanced uh, forms of cancer, but that's not, not correct. They can be given for any stage of cancer, and they may be helpful for you, so please ask your practitioner about it. So the treatment of lung cancers actually has gotten much more clear in the last uh, several months. So for those patients with advanced lung cancers spread outside the chest, regrowth after surgery or radiation, uh, that have a driver, and those drivers that we commonly have are EGFR, ALK, uh, HER2, BRAF, ROS1. There are specific drugs for those, for those cancers. And what's happened now in the space with, in, with ALK, the treatment of choice at the beginning of treatment is electinib. For uh, EGFR now, there's really only one treatment recommended, and that's a drug called osimertinib. Both of those drugs are the most effective and have the fewest side effects. For people that do not have a driver and whose cancers do not have a high dependency, uh, likelihood of uh, dependency and benefit from the immune uh, treatments, the treatment for them is chemotherapy. Uh, for uh, adenocarcinoma, it would be cis or carboplatin with uh, pemetrexid plus another drug. For um, squamous cancer, it would be cis or carboplatin plus gemcitabine or a drug like paclitaxel or albumin-bound paclitaxel or docetaxel. And for small cell lung cancer, it's cis or carboplatin with etoposide. Now, for all these cancers now, there is good evidence, and much of it presented at ASCO, that adding in an immune checkpoint blocker, uh, pembrolizumab, 
uh, dravalumab, atezolizumab with the chemotherapy. So even if in those cancers that do not have evidence of a, a very likely dependency, uh, adding in uh, immune checkpoint blocker has become a standard of care. The last thing to mention is that we've now learned that as chemo has become more effective, we're looking for ways to do better. Uh, one trend that we saw at ASCO this year was to add drugs to the targeted therapies, to give chemotherapy or bevacizumab with the drugs that target EGFR, like osimertinib or olotinib. We've learned also that when you have metastasis in only a, a small number of sites, that going after those metastases with surgery or radiation in addition to chemotherapy is helpful to some patients. And then lastly, when patients have control of their cancer and then the cancer grows again, but grows again in only one site, and this is something that we see uh, quite a lot now in people with the immune checkpoint drugs and people with targeted therapies, those patients can benefit by staying on the therapy they're on and getting a local therapy, either surgery or radiation. So in summary, there's been dramatic changes uh, in how we treat uh, lung cancers at this point. Virtually every patient uh, is considered for an immune treatment at some point. Sometimes it's by itself. Sometimes it's with uh, uh, chemotherapy. Sometimes it's before or after radiation or surgery. Uh, I urge you to meet with your healthcare team, find out all the options available to you, uh, and uh, develop a plan very specific for you uh, matched to your tumor, matched to your general health. Uh, results are improving tremendously, uh, and uh, this year's ASCO just uh, gave us more and more information how uh, we can do a better job uh, for you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Chris. That was really outstanding and very informative. Lots of information for people to then bring back to the healthcare team, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Al Benson III. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Co Co Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson is going to be presenting on updates on the treatment of colorectal cancer presented at ASCO. And it's really my great pleasure now to turn this from over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to join everyone today. Dr. Chris actually set the stage nicely uh, for my discussion. Uh, he certainly emphasized the importance of clinical trials because through our clinical research, uh, we have developed new treatment opportunities for patients, and importantly, we are learning much more about tumor biology. This year at ASCO and other important oncology meetings, uh, the focus in uh, colorectal cancer has really been uh, centered around better understanding of tumor biology because it's through tumor biology that we can better identify different groups of individuals who may respond differently to therapeutic interventions, including immunotherapy. And I'm going to uh, touch upon uh, some of these uh, biological phenomenon and the importance of such. Now, Dr. Chris mentioned MSI testing in lung cancer. And in fact, MSI testing now 
uh, is important in a variety of different cancers, particularly GI cancers. But more recently, it's, it's clearly been understood that all colorectal cancer patients should have their tumors tested for uh, what's known as the DNA mismatch repair pathway. Now, you'll hear the terms microsatellite instability, MSI, or deficient mismatch repair, known as MMR. Uh, these are the same biological phenomenon, but they are measured in the laboratory uh, using different uh, methodology. And just to quickly explain, microsatellites are short repeating DNA sequences across the human genome. These sequences, however, are very prone to errors. And fortunately, we routinely have genes that serve to correct these errors so that uh, mutations or other potentially adverse events do not occur. However, um, uh, with uh, microsatellite instability, uh, this repair uh, mechanism is uh, imperfect. Um, now, mismatch repair genes can be altered through germline mutations, and that's what we are born with and can be important for inherited cancers or by non-inherited loss of expression of these mismatch repair genes. In colorectal cancer, all told, about 15% of patients have uh, microsatellite instability tumors. Um, a minority of this group of people with MSI tumors have an inherited syndrome called Lynch syndrome, which is very important to identify because these individuals not only can rapidly develop colon cancers, but also other cancers, and their screening programs are uh, much different. Uh, the majority of people have what we call uh, uh, sporadic uh, uh, cancers, and uh, here there is uh, no, at least known, inherited predisposition. Um, what we've learned about uh, MSI uh, tumors is that um, these uh, tumors have extensive numbers of mutations, and Dr. Chris referred to this, uh, and have what's called a high tumor mutation burden, TMB. And uh, this is important because these are the, exactly the tumors that can benefit from immunotherapy. And the FDA has recently approved immunotherapeutics for patients with metastatic colorectal cancer who have MSI tumors, whether they're inherited or develop in a non-inherited fashion. Uh, these drugs include nivolumab and pembrolizumab, uh, which are generally given to patients if they've progressed on chemotherapy. Uh, however, uh, also uh, recently, there was work with combination immunotherapy with the drugs nivolumab and ipilimumab that uh, has been approved by the FDA and offers uh, further benefit for patients. And what we expect with uh, ongoing research 
that uh, we may uh, identify a better time frame when patients should uh, receive immunotherapy. Uh, so, for example, should people with MSI tumors be treated with immunotherapy right up front? And for the, uh, what we hope with the ongoing trials, we'll learn more about sequencing. Uh, MSI uh, phenomenon affects about just 4% of metastatic colorectal cancer patients. So it is not common. We are looking at strategies currently to uh, improve uh, people who do not have MSI uh, tumors but uh, may also benefit from immunotherapy if we can identify, for example, new combinations. What was very disappointing this year, one of those combinations uh, was tested in a randomized clinical trial uh, with uh, cobimetinib and atizolizumab, and unfortunately this trial uh, did not improve outcome. So uh, we do need to make more extensive efforts, and uh, there have been lots of uh, trials now being designed to look at uh, combinations to uh, enhance our ability to use immunotherapy for our patients with colorectal cancer. Now, uh, another uh, type of mutation is known as a BRAF mutation, and that affects about 5 to 10% of metastatic patients. And uh, recently, uh, a combination uh, with the drug, uh, drug combination of uh, vemurafenib, cetuximab, and arenatecan showed benefit uh, for patients with BRAF mutations. And this was very important because uh, often uh, patients with these mutations don't respond to therapy as well as we would like to see. And so this is certainly an advance. And in fact, there are other similar combinations using biological therapies and chemotherapies uh, for this population of patients. And we are awaiting uh, the results of these trials. And I suspect we will have even more regimens uh, to offer our patients. Uh, there's also been uh, a lot of discussion about another subgroup of people, and this represents maybe up to 5% of colorectal cancer patients who have what's known as HER2 expression or amplification. Uh, now, this biological phenomenon has been very important in breast cancer, and there are drugs that are routinely used now in breast cancer for people with HER2 expression. And the same is also true with stomach cancer. Uh, so what we hope is that the individuals who have HER2 expression and have colorectal cancer, that they too will benefit from these drugs such as trastuzumab that is widely used in in breast cancer as well as uh, stomach cancer for the HER2-positive patients. But there are also uh, other combinations like uh, lapatinib and trastuzumab uh, that are being tested. Uh, there is currently um, a large uh, uh, Phase two NCI trial 
that's ongoing where we're actually looking at trastuzumab and pertuzumab and comparing that to a very standard regimen of cetuximab and arena-tcan for the HER2-amplified patient groups. And we're anxiously awaiting those results. And I suspect in the near future that uh, HER2 therapy will become yet another important approach uh, for our patients who, who have uh, HER2 amplification uh, or expression. Uh, now, uh, there, there's also some much smaller groups of patients, uh, around the 1% uh, uh, percentage of, of patients uh, who have what are called TRK fusions, and there's actually uh, a biological therapies being investigated uh, for this rare group. Uh, and then a, another uh, important group that we're looking at are patients with RAS mutations. And people with RAS mutations have been a daunting challenge because we've not been able, outside of chemotherapy, which can certainly help people with RAS mutations, but we've not been able to identify additional biological therapies to help this group. And this is a sizable group of people representing up to 50% of people with metastatic colorectal cancer. Um, those who have what are known as RAS wild type or non-mutated uh, tumors um, have undergone extensive evaluation, and uh, that has led to the routine use of uh, the class of drugs known as anti-EGFR agents, and the two that are typically used are uh, cetuximab and panituvimab. And clearly, these drugs, particularly in combination with chemotherapy, have helped people with uh, the RAS wild-type tumor. Uh, with RAS uh, mutated tumors, there's now an extensive effort, and there are a number of early phase trials, uh, some giving uh, uh, other types of biological therapies with chemotherapy. Others are looking at biological uh, combinations. And we, we're very hopeful that um, over time, uh, we will be able to further improve uh, the uh, response rates for people with the mutated tumors. Uh, we're also doing more and more work uh, looking at um, other uh, types of groups of patients, and this comes from what's known as the consensus molecular subtype of colorectal cancer which was published in 2015. And this defines four different important groups of patients with uh, colorectal cancer. Uh, the first group, CMS1, is uh, a group of patients who tend to have MSI tumors. And so this is a group that may uh, benefit in a large part to immunotherapy alone or in combinations. Uh, but there are also three other groups where there may be subtypes of people 
who will also develop uh, responsiveness to immunotherapy. And there's a lot of work going on now to better identify those subgroups of patients. Uh, these other three main uh, subtypes of colorectal cancer also have characteristics, for example, where they may uh, include a larger percentage of people with RAS mutations. And so it's going to be increasingly important that we understand these groups and identify them. So uh, I would encourage people to continue to participate in clinical trials because from these we are gaining much more information about colorectal biology, which in fact is translating into new treatment opportunities. And with that, I'll conclude my remarks, and thanks for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really very outstanding and incredibly lots of information for people to bring back to the treating healthcare team. And thank you very much for your presentation. And our next speaker is Dr. Eileen O'Reilly. Dr. O'Reilly is Associate Director, Clinical Research, David M. Rubenstein Center for Pancreatic Cancer Research, Attending Physician, Member Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Weill Medical College of Cornell University. And Dr. O'Reilly will be addressing pancreatic cancer. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Reilly. So good afternoon. Uh, thank you, Carolyn, for the introduction. It's a pleasure to have a few minutes just to review the highlights regarding pancreas cancer from the ASCO program uh, 2018. And just to sort of set the scene a little bit, uh, just a, a few brief points about pancreas cancer. This is a cancer that's getting more common in North America. About 55,000 people are diagnosed each year. About 50% of people will have metastasis or spread of the cancer at the time of diagnosis. About a third will have disease which is localized and involving blood vessels. And about a third of patients will have disease that's either operable upfront or potentially operable if the cancer uh, were to respond to treatment. And in fact, in that latter context, uh, we had important information uh, that was uh, disclosed and is very relevant to practice uh, today. And I'll just kind of briefly walk you through this. So one of the, the studies that uh, is now being integrated into standard treatment for pancreas cancer is a trial that was evaluating a combination of drugs called fulfirinox, and that includes a drug called 5-FU, medication called oxaliplatin, a vitamin called leucovorin, and a medication called arenatecan. That particular combination, fulfirinox, has been established as a treatment for metastatic pancreas cancer, originally described almost eight years ago now and has become widely used. So a big question following uh, the, the benefits in metastatic disease was, well, what about giving this combination postoperatively so people who've undergone a successful surgery, could this uh, particular program improve the outcome uh, for patients? And that indeed was what was shown in this uh, large study. It was from Canada and from uh, Europe, and it was uh, a trial that was only for patients who'd uh, had a surgical operation to remove their primary pancreas cancer, had no obvious uh, residual 
uh, cancer after the surgery who had made a good recovery, and I stress this because this is a relatively intense program of treatment. Uh, so nutritionally, we're in, in good health. Uh, wound had uh, healed and uh, reasonably active, and those group of patients were allocated to either fulfirinox or a standard uh, gemcitabine uh, postoperatively, and this uh, trial showed uh, a relatively large advantage uh, to giving fulfirinox over gemcitabine in terms of delaying the cancer coming back and for some uh, preventing it altogether in, in terms of coming back at certain landmarks in time. So it does come at a little bit of a penalty in that uh, the, the side effects of this treatment can be uh, moderate in, in terms of fatigue, in terms of blood count suppression and the risk of infection, and in terms of gastrointestinal uh, side effects such as diarrhea, nausea, uh, vomiting, etc. So these, these require attention and preemption if possible. Uh, but nonetheless, even taking the downsides of this uh, program into account, it was superior on all fronts in terms of outcome. So that, that's led uh, to a change and, and for fit, otherwise healthy people who've undergone a successful operation for pancreas cancer, this is now a consideration as part of standard treatment. In addition to uh, gemcitabine-based uh, combinations of, of drugs, which are an option for a person who isn't perhaps as robust or has other health issues that might preclude a more intense uh, program. And I'll just mention that later in 2018, early 2019, we'll have uh, data from another large uh, adjuvant study, so study testing new treatment in the postoperative setting, evaluating gemcitabine and napaclitaxel uh, compared to gemcitabine and alone, alone and we're cautiously optimistic that this may may also add to uh, options and, and thus choices in, in the postoperative uh, setting. So that's, that's an important area. There was a, a, a second study uh, that pertains to uh, patients who have localized uh, pancreas cancer. This was a, another European uh, trial from our Dutch uh, colleagues. And they looked at a strategy of neoadjuvant or preoperative uh, therapy for patients with operable or almost operable, also termed borderline resectable pancreas cancer. And the overall study hypothesis was that for people who have this disease, even though it may be feasible to go to the operating room tomorrow, we know that there's a relatively high potential for cells to lurk in other places at a microscopic level, and that uh, for those patients going directly to the operating room uh, puts them through a, a major intervention that ultimately probably isn't going to change their overall outcome. So early delivery of uh, chemotherapy medications to try and eradicate those microscopic disease to, to shrink the disease that's there and to sometimes facilitate a better operation uh, is a theme that's being uh, and has been and is being uh, developed over the last uh, five to ten years in pancreas cancer. So, so our Dutch uh, collaborator or Dutch colleagues uh, investigated uh, this approach and compared it directly to surgery first followed by post-operative treatment. 
and uh, the more the latter being the more traditional strategy and in this trial uh, the preoperative uh, approach using a gemcitabine uh, combination and gemcitabine with radiation uh, there was a fairly strong suggestion that this was going to be potentially superior. But there are a few caveats to this. Uh, one, it's an older uh, regimen of medication that was used. And secondly, it's a small study and, and doesn't have enough power in the statistical sense to be able to draw definitive conclusions. And thirdly, the trial is not mature yet but it does leave open the question of is it a better approach to think about upfront chemotherapy versus uh, going directly to the operating room and uh, following surgery with chemotherapy. And that, and that, that theme is, is continuing to be uh, developed and there are a number of trials now being planned with some of these newer uh, programs of treatment such as uh, Fulfirinox to understand uh, whether it's better before surgery or after surgery. So more to come on, on that topic. So I'm going to move to, to metastatic disease. So again, where, where pancreas cancer has spread, uh, you know, typically to the liver or lungs or inner lining of the abdominal cavity. And in, in that setting, as we've mentioned, Fulfirinox is a, is a mainstay for, again, otherwise uh, relatively healthy people. But a big question has been, that over time uh, this treatment can uh, be hard. The body gets more run down from cumulative impacts of side effects and relative debility from the treatments. And in particular, one of the challenges is neuropathy, so pins and needles and numbness uh, that's dose-related. And, and that's primarily uh, attributed to the oxaliplatin. So our uh, French uh, colleagues uh, designed a trial for patients with metastatic pancreas cancer who were getting uh, fulfirinox to look at what about taking the oxaliplatin out of the combination after a certain period of time and continuing a maintenance approach of uh, the same uh, treatment without the oxaliplatin and uh, arenatican and comparing it to continuing uh, fulfirinox as in the parent version of it. And there was a third arm as well, which wasn't, wasn't uh, as successful, but the bottom line is this strategy was uh, very supportive of the idea that it uh, can be helpful uh, to take out uh, the oxaliplatin and also reassuring in the fact that it didn't um, lead to any detriment in terms of overall outcome for patients. And, and that's, that's a key theme as... Uh, people are, are living longer with this disease and, and treatments oftentimes are continued somewhat indefinitely. It's uh, helpful to know that we're not uh, jeopardizing impact by de-escalating the intensity of, of treatment. And, and these data are, are also being integrated in, into practice, although we've been sort of adapting it from our, our colleagues in colorectal cancer who've been using this strategy uh, for a number of years at this point. So I, I think the, these are drugs that have been established in terms of the themes from ASCO this year, but sort of learning how best to use them and in what settings. Uh, we also had some 
information on some new combinations related to genetic targeting and related to uh, targeting the uh, what we call the microenvironment or the whole milieu in which uh, pancreas cancer center cells uh, grow and divide. And we'll be looking forward to seeing uh, those data develop. Uh, but I think this was this was an exciting year uh, for pancreas cancer in 2018. Uh, so thank you. I'll, I'll stop there. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. O'Reilly, for that ex exceptional presentation. And our next speaker is Dr. John Leonard. Dr. Leonard is a Richard T. Silver Distinguished Professor of Hematology and Medical Oncology, Associate Dean for Clinical Research, Weill Cornell Medical College, Associate Director, Sandra and Edward Mayer Cancer Center at Weill Cornell Medicine, Executive Vice Chair, Joan and Sanford Weill Department of Medicine, Weill Cornell Medical Medicine, and New York Presbyterian. And Dr. Lennon is going to be presenting on updates from ASCO on lymphoma. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lennon. Well, thank you much, Dr. Messner, and I really appreciate the opportunity to present today. Uh, these sessions are always uh, uh, very nice to be a part of. I always learn a great deal, and uh, I hope that this is helpful to the audience. Um, the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting had several uh, updates uh, in hemologic malignancies, but in particular uh, in uh, lymphoma and related areas. And I want to focus uh, on three particular uh, areas uh, um, uh, in my comments. The first area relates to the potential treatment for uh, indolent lymphomas. So uh, non-Hodgkin lymphomas, as many in the audience know, are divided into several large categories. And one of the major categories, roughly one-third of patients, uh, have a subtype called follicular lymphoma. And follicular lymphoma is a type of lymphoma that is uh, often referred to as kind of a hitchhiker lymphoma, meaning that it um, often doesn't need any treatment at the time of diagnosis if it's not causing any problems, not causing any symptoms. And the majority of patients with follicular lymphoma do not die from follicular lymphoma. They die with follicular lymphoma, meaning that it is more of a chronic uh, condition that is managed over time for the majority of patients, although unfortunately not quite all of patients. So one of the questions that comes up in patients diagnosed with follicular lymphoma uh, is whether or not the patient needs treatment at the time of diagnosis. This typically presents with enlarged lymph nodes, potentially blood count issues, other symptoms, but often is just an incidental finding where the patient notes a swollen lymph node or several swollen lymph nodes, and if it's not causing any symptoms, it's possible the patients won't need any treatment at all for a period of time, sometimes years. When patients need treatment, there are a variety of different treatment options. There's uh, chemotherapy of a variety of types. There's uh, the addition of a drug rituximab, a monoclonal antibody immune therapy, to chemotherapy. There are new versions of rituximab. And then there are other novel new agents that are out there. And all of these are relatively effective at shrinking the disease for a meaningful period of time. Um, and most of these are quite similar in the uh, long-term outlook, meaning how 
long people live. And so there's a lot of discussion, a lot of, um, I would say, controversy or at least opportunities for different uh, regimens to be chosen. And one of the fundamental questions for patients and physicians is whether or not chemotherapy is needed. And so one of the major approaches has been to say, can we uh, potentially postpone chemotherapy or delay chemotherapy or eliminate chemotherapy in favor of newer treatment options? And so um, the, the first study to really test this in a, in a major way was presented uh, at the ASCO meeting. This is called the Relevance Trial, and this evaluated patients treated uh, with either chemotherapy of various types. One type is called CHOP, one type is called bendamustine, one type is called CVP, with rituximab, an immune therapy, versus uh, a chemotherapy-free regimen, so to speak, where the patients did not receive chemotherapy. They received um, the rituximab treatment in combination with a drug called lenalidomide or Revlimid. And lenalidomide is a drug that's approved for certain types of lymphoma that was studied in follicular lymphoma as initial therapy in this trial with interesting results. Both of the courses of treatment were given over about 18 months or so. Uh, and so the net was that this was a study that involved about 1,000 patients. Half of the patients received, again, chemotherapy plus rituximab. Half of the patients received lenalidomide or Revlimid plus rituximab. The study was designed to show that lenalidomide rituximab was actually better in efficacy. It was designed statistically and for other reasons to show that um, the chemo-free regimen, so to speak, was actually better. And in fact, it did not meet that endpoint, meaning it did not show that the chemo-free regimen was better. However, it did show that the two different uh, treatment approaches were quite similar. This is not quite the same statistically as saying that they are equivalent or identical, but the net is that the roughly 500 patients treated with each of the two approaches had very similar outcomes. The treatment was effective. Patients uh, had a high response rate, meaning the tumor shrank uh, in over 90% of patients in both groups, and that the uh, durability, meaning the duration of the time that the treatment uh, worked for, the time that it took for the disease to come back, was quite similar uh, in both arms. And so the side effect profile was a little bit different. It depended a little bit on what treatment the patient had with chemotherapy. There was a little more infection, a little more low blood counts. Uh, on the other hand, uh, in the lenalidomide arm, there was less infection, less low blood counts, but a little bit more rash. And so what this says, I would say, is that while we don't know that a chemo rituximab regimen is better or worse uh, than uh, a lenalidomide rituximab regimen, what we do know is that the results seem quite similar. And so I think what this means for patients who already have many different treatment options is that this is one more treatment option that can be effective in patients with follicular lymphoma, an option that has some pros and cons um, compared to chemo plus rituximab. Uh, lenalidomide, I should say, is a pill. It's an oral therapy given with rituximab, which is an intravenous uh, or subcutaneous uh, injection therapy. 
And so I think the message and the benefit for patients here is that it gives one more option. And it's important to note that this was a group of patients who had what we call high tumor burden. This was patients that had a fair amount of disease, meaning their lymph nodes were relatively large and numerous. And so the fact that a chemotherapy-free regimen could be effective in people who had substantial amounts of their disease uh, being present, I think is a meaningful uh, option for patients. And so for those people dealing with follicular lymphoma, this is just one more option. And I think we like having different options for patients so that patient preferences can be uh, honored and, and uh, can guide therapy when feasible. I think this suggests um, a benefit here, uh, or at least an option here um, that patients have at their disposal uh, that could be useful in some situations. The second area that I want to speak briefly about um, relates to a category of drugs called Bruton's tyrosine kinase, or BTK, inhibitors. These are drugs that are pills that are taken that essentially flick switches and bind to switches in B cells. Most lymphomas are B cell lymphomas. And these essentially bind a pocket in, um, and in the molecular machinery of these B cells. One of those pockets or switches is called Bruton's tyrosine kinase, or BTK. And essentially, by binding that pocket, these drugs can make the B cells switches that are keeping them alive and keeping them growing can make them unhappy. And the cells are unhappy. They're more prone to die off, more like they're supposed to. And so one of these drugs called ibrutinib has revolutionized the treatment, I would say, of a disease called chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Uh, it's also available and used for a treatment, a disease called mantle cell lymphoma. And um, the, the, there is a second generation or a different type of Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor called acalabrutinib, and that is approved for relapsed mantle cell lymphoma as well. So the BTK inhibitors, ibrutinib and acalabrutinib, are now available for different lymphoma subtypes. They are most relevant to uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia and mantle cell lymphoma at this point in time. Um, and their main side effects include some fatigue, some low blood counts. Occasionally, they can cause cardiac rhythm issues, uh, and they can also uh, cause bleeding and bruising as side effects. So they need to be used carefully in people that have cardiac issues as well as um, blood thinning issues or blood thinner requirements. So the data from the uh, ASCO meeting include new data on acalabrutinib in a subtype of lymphoma called Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. That's another indolent chronic lymphoma that has certain characteristics where acalabrutinib has been uh, active over uh, in over 90% of patients in shrinking the disease by various measures. And so this is one more option, I think, that we will see more studies with and more data with in Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. I would also point out, not so much from the ASCO meeting, but in the recent news, that the combination of ibrutinib, the other BTK inhibitor, and rituximab uh, has been recently approved just in the last few days for patients with Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, and ibrutinib was previously approved for that entity. And so for patients with Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, again, there are numerous treatments uh, out there, uh, and certainly um, this provides uh, new options that people can talk about with, with their physicians. 
Finally, in the last minute or so, I just want to um, also highlight the concept of CAR T cells. CAR T cells have gotten a lot of attention in the news. These are immune cells, T cells, that are removed from the patient that are engineered uh, through a fancy blood donation. They're engineered in the laboratory to um, essentially uh, become more uh, revved up against uh, potentially tumor cells. They are then infused back into the patient like a fancy blood transfusion. This is often done with certain forms of chemotherapy. CAR T cells are approved for certain patients, particularly children with acute lymphocytic leukemia, and they are also uh, approved for patients who have been through a number of prior therapies for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, the most common aggressive lymphoma um, in those patients who have relatively resistant disease. And so uh, I won't get into the details of this. These data have been presented at a number of different meetings, uh, including the ASCO meeting, and I would say that in uh, a meaningful number of patients who have been through lots of prior therapies and have disease that's relatively resistant, that CAR T cells can cause a remission, can induce a remission, can give benefit to patients, and in fact, some of these remissions can be relatively durable, meaning lasting a year or two, and some, uh, in some cases even longer, suggesting the potential for cure. They unfortunately don't work in everyone. Again, about a third of patients have these long remissions. About two-thirds of patients as of now have either shorter remissions and, or no remissions. And they do have some side effects, which in some cases can be serious and life-threatening. So it's a complicated uh, area of research and um, uh, a complicated therapy to administer, but they are now FDA approved in a couple of situations that I've mentioned. We have a couple of agents that are uh, available, and I think for people with acute lymphocytic leukemia and uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma that has returned, uh, certainly talking with your doctor about this new therapy, CAR T-cells, which are also uh, being studied in many other malignancies, including multiple myeloma, uh, other tumors, other types of leukemia. Um, this this is an area that uh, there are a lot of active clinical trials that are very important and, and exciting um, that I think we're at the tip of the iceberg with, but certainly something that patients should talk to their doctor about. So with that, I'll stop, and uh, thank you for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Leonard. That was really outstanding, as always, and just a wonderful presentation, and um, and really uh, has given people lots of information to take back to the treating healthcare team, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader, Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor of medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Morrow is going to be addressing updates from ASCO um, um, on leukemia. It's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Well, thank you, Carolyn. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, so... You might have just heard that my uh, area of focus is indeed uh, in myeloproliferative disorders, and uh, I think it's exciting to stay on the call. Dr. Sherber will be updating us in myeloproliferative disorders in just a few minutes, but I'm going to speak to you about an area that I also cover and take care of patients as well in leukemia. So ASCO stands for American Society of Clinical Oncology, and leukemia is a hematologic malignancy. So to be honest with you, I'm going to take the least of your time today, um, but I want to cover a few things because at ASCO, leukemia is um, a bit quieter than it is at another meeting called ASH, or American Society for Hematology. And um, what I really wanted to talk to you about was some exciting news we've had in acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. Um, 
in the last few years, we have really moved quite a ways from where we used to be in AML with regards to our treatment. AML is a diagnosis we see occurring in, in patients, young and old, sort of a bimodal distribution. Um, it's unfortunately a, a, a challenging diagnosis because it quickly affects the blood and, and brings on risk of infection, bleeding, and bruising. Um, unfortunately, it's also a, a condition that can evolve from what's called a pre-leukemia or myelodysplasia, and it can be, unfortunately, a, a complication of patients who have had treatment for other cancers, meaning that chemotherapy for one condition can then, unfortunately, uh, damage the blood and allow for leukemia to develop. Some of the challenges we've been facing have been really to understand the pathogenesis or what is making leukemia tick. As well, trying to come up with treatments different than our conventional chemotherapy, which we hadn't been able to move away from for many years. And I'm excited to tell you that there have been several advances in the last year, and they fall into three categories I'm going to um, discuss. The first will be medications that target a certain molecular or machinery defect in leukemia cells called IDH. The second would be taking the drugs we have been using called cytarabine and um, uh, <clears throat> anthracyclines or donorubicin and making them work better by combining them um, in a special way to deliver them to leukemia cells better. And the third is something that Dr. Leonard might have just mentioned, is that sometimes we, we um, are able to borrow from each other. And in fact, we're seeing tremendous uh, activity using a drug that was originally developed for lymphoid tumors called venetoclax, uh, which is, inhib is an inhibitor of something called BCL2, which is a cancer protein, something that keeps cancer cells, apparently both um, lymphoid and myeloid cells, um, from undergoing programmed cell death or, or dying when they should. And this drug has worked its way into AML treatment. So let me back up a little bit and talk about AML. It's, a, again, a blood cancer that comes in different, um, many different types of really how far along the maturation of cells does it happen. There are different genetic markers, different molecular markers, so it can be very complicated. Many patients, when they're diagnosed with AML, are wondering, what type do I have? What, what's the chromosomes? What about the molecular tests? And again, AML is just one type of acute leukemia. There's acute lymphoid leukemia. And that has several different types. And there's, of course, chronic leukemias. But let me focus on AML. A very um, nice body of work allowed us to understand that um, not in every patient, but perhaps um, around um, 10 to 20% of patients um, may have a mutation in, in a, an enzyme called IDH, which stands for isocitrate dehydrogenase. So if someone wants to pull out their biology books from high school, you may have come across this enzyme um, when you were a school-age uh, student learning biology. Cells require energy, and there's a, something called the Krebs cycle, which is a, a, a machinery inside uh, the energy-producing elements of a cell, which keeps the cell going. And those enzymes um, uh, or uh, proteins uh, facilitate transfer and act activation of different steps. If one of them is mutated, you might have an imbalance developing, and that's what we've discovered in AML. So a mutation and a simple one-off one change in the, uh, the way the, the IDH protein is built or the enzyme is built creates a buildup of something which is bad in leukemia cells. Um, um, it, the IDH enzymes controls stress response in blood cells and the control over the machinery of, of the way cells divide, um, whether the genes are activated or deactivated, something called methylation, or whether the, the DNA is, is modified. So if there's a mutation in IDH, leukemia can happen, or at least we think that could be a strong um, force allowing AML to occur. So quite simply stated, 
would, inhi would an inhibitor of IDH, whatever type of mutation you had, be an effective treatment for AML? And the answer is, seemingly is yes. Um, to the last ASH and ASCO meetings, we've seen publications of different studies. And the reason I mention it now is because right after the ASCO meeting in 2018, just a few months ago, we saw approval of not the first, but the second of the IDH um, medications. The first um, drug that was studied is called anacitinib. This is a mouthful. Um, it also um, goes by a code name, um, AG, AG221. And that is an inhibitor of, an, of the of the type of IDH enzyme called IDH2. It was studied in a large number of patients with AML who had a mutation in, in this IDH um, enzyme. And with an oral medication with a relatively mild side effect profile when it comes to what the drug itself caused. Now, AML itself causes many problems, and folks had to work through that. But this drug by itself was able to, in a, in a significant minority of patients, cause a remission, sometimes not always with blood recovery, but often with. Um, and the only significant side effects that were observed were um, changes in liver enzymes and, ironically, something called differentiation syndrome, where the cells are not just dying off and causing trouble on the way out, but actually growing up and maturing. And that can cause some inflammation and symptoms itself. Um, there, of course, were a number of other side effects, nausea and, and typical side effects you'd expect with chemotherapy, although this isn't what people think of as conventional chemotherapy with hair loss and a lot of GI effects and requiring people to be in the hospital. And much of this was, be able, was able to be delivered out of the hospital. Fast forward to 20, and that was published in 2017. Public, building on that, um, studies have been going on with IDH1. And um, in, right again, right after ASCO, a drug called Ivacetinib, or AG120 was approved with a very large study, similar number of patients, 250 overall, but 180 of these were folks with um, um, AML that hadn't responded to treatment or had to come back quickly, unfortunately. And almost the same type of activity was seen. About 40% or so of patients were able to get into a remission of, of, of good quality, sometimes without full blood recovery, but often so. And with the same type of side effects, where um, the side effects related to the drug itself was actually the white cells growing up and, and causing a bit of uh, inflammation as that happened rather than just um, dying off. Um, of course, lower blood counts and a number of common leukemia-related side effects needed to be managed, such as diarrhea, fever, and low blood count-related fevers and, and whatnot. Um, but these are incredibly encouraging drugs. Of patients who did get a, a, a quality remission or complete remission or a complete remission without blood recovery, one in five of them, this mutation was completely eliminated by molecular testing. So these drugs call great promise. Now, this is not everyone with AML. Again, this may be around 15 20% of patients. But if we can continue to find these, these uncover these pathways and um, uh, understand the targetable lesions, as we call it in AML, this would be uh, perhaps the real future of beating this disease. Um, there are large trials going on, which are literally putting folks in different categories depending on what mutations they have or what defects we see in leukemia. One example is a trial called Beat AML, very appropriate name, um, where just that question is being asked in a focused way. So it, it's tailored specific treatment for each patient. So great news on that front. Let me tell you a bit about the um, drug called Vixios, which goes by the uh, acronym CPX351. Now, this drug's been in development for a number of years. I myself remember giving this first few patients this drug who uh, across the globe. Um, it's, it's an, actually a purple drug um, that's given by IV infusion, so it's got a quite a quite a uh, uh, interesting panache with, with regards to the way it's formulated. But what this is is they've taken the drugs we have been treating AML with for decades, 
called cytarabine and donrubicin, and they combine them into what's called a liposome, which is a, a way to get the chemotherapy drugs kind of isolated in a little bubble, um, a fat bubble, and deliver them to leukemia cells so they are delivered in greater quantities to leukemia cells and healthy cells at just the right proportion. And this has been through many different studies showing that it would be safe and potentially um, deliver more cancer, more cancer-treating chemotherapy to leukemia cells. And we've now finally just, again, right after ASCO, we've seen publication um, of key studies showing us just how well this medication works. So this was now a, what's called a randomized trial where everyone's getting good treatment, but half the patients were, or, or a proportion of patients were getting the standard way of getting the drug, and then the other group was getting this newer formulation. And both groups did well, um, but the patients who got this newer formulation of the drugs were able to live longer, have higher rates of remission. Their blood counts took a bit longer to recover, but they didn't have any additional side effects. Um, and it doesn't have as many side effects overall as um, conventional, uh, what we call 7 plus 3 chemotherapy for AML. Um, so this drug was then uh, has been FDA approved for people who have what has become a, a, a bit of a problem that we know we have to face is that people who have had um, a pre-leukemia condition called myelodysplasia or people who have had treatment for other cancers or other other strong medicines that can sometimes cause leukemia, they've developed a leukemia that way, not just spontaneously or, or what we call de novo um, leukemia. This is for therapy-related or AML with MDS changes. So this is another great breakthrough, another smart advance in the, in the treatment of AML. The last thing I want to tell you about is, again, the borrowing of other medications from other areas and that would be with venetoclax. So venetoclax is a drug that's been developed and studied in a number of different lymphoid cancers and also has clearly found its home in myeloid cancers. The bottom line is the way this drug works by targeting an, a, a protein called BCL2, which is in the re which regulates when cells die and when they survive, which obviously is a, a, a tool that cancer cells use to stay alive. If you can target that uh, and... Um, perhaps combining with other medications useful in AML. I think we think we found a very nice combination. And at the ASCO meeting, there was an update on trying uh, on studies, key studies combining venetoclax with drugs called hypomethylating agents. The names them, the names of them are azacitidine and decitabine. These themselves are better drugs we've been using in AML that aren't as, as um, dangerous as conventional chemotherapy, but work well in myelodysplasia, which is pre-leukemia, or AML. And Remarkably, adding this BCL2-targeted drug, venetoclax, to the right dose of, for example, azacitidine, which works by the same, I mentioned something called methylation, which is the way, you know, whether a cell, cell's machinery is turned on or off, this, um, these drugs are called hypomethylating agents affect that same pathway. So these two pathways, put them together and treat a leukemia um, cell with them together. It's much more potent than, than either alone. And, and in, this, in, in looking at response rates and, uh, I, and I, um, an experience of a number of different patients treated with both um, medications and at different doses of venetoclax, three-quarters of patients are able to get into a meaningful remission with a combination of this drug venetoclax and the right dose of probably more likely azacitidine, a little bit more potent than decitabine. So we are both cross-pollinating, getting smarter about our drugs that we've used in the past, and we've discovered key new targets in AML. Again, not every case, but I think if we keep looking, we'll find the ones that are that affect the, more, the majority of patients or significant minorities and be able to tailor AML treatment to treat it smarter with drugs that are targeted and can be delivered often out of the hospital with much less side effects or deliver chemotherapy smarter again or, or, or choose different pathways and make real progress. And this 
has become a bit of a, a, a tremendous wave of optimism in AML. For years, we've been using medications which have been effective, but we've been always seeking better and more specialized and safer treatments, and we finally have it. So that's my update from leukemia from ESCO, and again, I focused on AML, and I'll, I'll stop there and turn it back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. That was really exceptional in terms of covering all of these important topics, and I can't thank you enough. And um, and now we have our next presenter is um, Dr. Um, Robin Sherber. Dr. Sherber is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Department of Hematology and Oncology, Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio, MD Anderson. And Dr. Sherber is going to be addressing updates from ASCO on myeloproliferative neoplasms. It gives me great pleasure to present to you my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sherber. Hi. Well, it's a pleasure to be able to be on this phone call today. Um, as we approach the warmest time of year, we start to see another wave of research come through for the myeloproliferative neoplasms, and as Dr. Morrow mentioned, also in the winter, so it seems to be <laughs> also a bimodal distribution during the year. We, um, in addition to that winter conference called the American Society of Hematology, as Dr. Morrow mentioned, we have in the summer the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, what we've been talking about today. But we also have the European Hematology Association that took place this year in Stockholm. So I'll be talking a little bit both about that ASCO conference as well as the EHA conference. So to start us off, um, at EHA, we had more research that came out there. One of the first things that we had that came out that's relevant to probably a lot of people on the call is that they have updated prognostic scoring system, so ways for us to kind of figure out who might be better or worse to go to stem cell transplant. And in these prognostic scoring systems, we were able to see that patients who have different types of myelofibrosis, especially patients who have myelofibrosis stemming from polycythemia vera or essential thrombocythemia, there's different ways to look at that population and different ways to figure out if they would benefit from transplant. I'll back this up a little bit and talk about different types of myeloproliferative neoplasms. So similar to what Dr. Morrow studies, myeloproliferative neoplasms are a type of chronic blood cancers. There's three main types. Essential thrombocythemia, also called ET, is one where we see too many platelets. We also can see elevated rates of blood clots. The second one is polycythemia vera. That's pretty much characterized by elevated red blood cell count. Sometimes patients with polycythemia vera will also have elevated platelet counts. And again, patients with polycythemia vera are at higher risk of blood clots. The third type is myelofibrosis, and myelofibrosis is typically accompanied by scarring of the bone marrow. These patients can have really large spleens, and over time you can see the blood counts go be high and then eventually go low, and both clotting and bleeding can be issues. So again, the ways to kind of determine whether or not patients should go to transplant or not, that's usually just reserved for myelofibrosis patients. For myelofibrosis, one of our main treatments that we have available is called ruxolitinib. And this drug is a JAK inhibitor, and it targets one of the main mutations we see in this disease. We have a few updates on ruxolitinib. One of them that was actually done at Dana-Farber 
looked at patients with kind of middle-of-the-road myelofibrosis, and what they were able to see is that patients who ended up going to transplant that were given ruxolitinib beforehand actually ended up doing better with the administration of ruxolitinib. And this kind of confirms what we've seen before in the past, where it looks like patients with ruxolitinib do tend to do better. In general, most of the reviews, patients who have received ruxolitinib who have myelofibrosis tend to live longer. So that's good. We're progressing our treatments. One of the research that came out that hit some people a little bit hard is that it looks like ruxolitinib may or may not be associated with some increased rates of other cancers, especially B-cell lymphomas. Now, we do know that B-cell lymphomas tend to be higher rates in patients with myelofibrosis in general, um, but there is some thought that the immunosuppression or basically the predisposition to the immune system not working so well that can happen with ruxolitinib may cause there to be some higher rates of lymphomas too, but that's something that's being looked into. In terms of other research, we do have uh, updates from ASCO on a trial of Lupatercept, and this is basically a protein that can cause red blood cells to help mature. It's been shown to be effective in preclinical models as well as in early myelodysplastic syndrome studies, and those patients sometimes have problems producing red blood cells as well. It's a subcutaneous drug, so they put it under the skin, and they usually give it every three weeks. So far, we didn't get too many updates at ASCO, but we do know that they at least have 12 patients enrolled as of April and that they're enrolling both in the U.S. and Europe. I know we have this study available here in San Antonio, but we're pretty excited about those, what those results might show. A few other drugs that are kind of come up and coming, but we don't have too much data on yet, is the combination of ruxolitinib with another drug called Nevitoclax, which is a BCL2 inhibitor, as well as the combination of ruxolitinib with umbrellacid which is a PI3 kinase inhibitor that we already have available in some other cancer types. We also have ongoing studies of different types of JAK inhibitors. One of them is Pucritinib, as well as another one called Feteratinib, and we're hopeful that maybe this would be another option other than Ruxolitinib in terms of treating um, myelofibrosis patients. In terms of polycythemia vera, that other type of myeloproliferative neoplasm. We do have a little bit of updated information. We know that there is an ongoing trial of idesanutlin, a nutlin inhibitor in hydroxyurea-resistant or intolerant polycythemia vera, or also in patients who haven't been able to tolerate or have failed interferon, which is another major drug that we have. This drug is usually given 100 or 150 milligram dosing, and so far what we had were updates on basically the safety of the medication. It does look to be safe. They didn't see too many toxicities that limited our ability to give the drug. So this is something to consider in polycythemia vera. As some of you may know, we also have ruxolitinib available for polycythemia vera in patients who weren't able to tolerate hydroxyurea or who became resistant of it. We also have some updates from the European Hematology Association on ROPEG interferon, which is a special type of long-acting interferon. 
And what we were able to see is that from the PROUD PD study, it does look like at least there is comparable ability to control blood counts compared to hydroxyurea, and that this may be a promising new therapy that could be considered maybe earlier on in treatment, potentially in some patients even before giving it or hydroxyurea. But that's still being looked at in greater depth. The final thing that I do want to talk about here, uh, while we still just have a few minutes, are some data that's actually come out of our group, uh, some of which I've presented, both at uh, ASCO and at um, the European Hematology Association that specifically deals with symptom burden, because I know that this is something that our group has researched extensively and something that's relevant to a lot of patients probably on the line as well. So we, one of the first things we looked at um, recently was the role of symptom burden and how, basically how weight can affect that. And we looked specifically at a marker of weight called body mass index, which is essentially how much someone weighs compared to how, how tall they are. And what we were able to see is that patients who had higher body mass index or basically weighed more compared to their height had higher symptom burden in general. This seemed to be a little bit higher in women, but was highest when we looked at different types of disease, highest in polycythemia there as well as in myelofibrosis. And this does suggest that maybe we should be looking at weight as a way to help control symptom burden if someone's weight is, is disproportionately elevated. The other thing that we looked at was the role of pain and how this impacts symptom burden in general and emotional health. We looked at over 2,300 patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms and were able to see that patients, especially with severe pain, reported being more irritable and depressed, having problems with concentration, sleeping, they had higher amounts of unintentional weight loss, problems with relationships with people that they cared about, and overall reductions in quality of life. So this also suggests that maybe pain is something we should be focusing on when we consider treating patients with myeloproliferative neoplasms for their symptoms. We do have some ongoing trials of nutrition, and that was something that actually was focused on at the European Hematology Association conference. They came up with a new nutritional calculator in myelofibrosis. But in the past, we've looked at the role of nutrition in comparison to symptoms, and we know that nutrition appears to at least have a correlation with how patients feel. So we have some ongoing efforts here to look and see if changing nutrition can't change symptom burden. The final thing I want to mention before we wrap up is that there are efforts that we've uh, basically looked at um, in terms of symptom burden in the myeloproliferative neoplasms taking place in terms of the MyMPN registry. This registry is being conducted in in collaboration with the MPN Research Foundation. It can be found at www.mympn.org. And essentially what it is is a way for MPN patients to go online and track their symptoms as well as their disease course over time. So when they go on, they're originally asked information about their, what their disease course has been, whether or not they had a history of blood clots. And then this allows us to actually, and them as well, to track symptoms over time, and they can actually see how their symptoms change, and then they can report whether or not there's been any changes in their disease. 
We have over, so at EHA, I presented this data, there's over 450 patients in the registry to date. There's a good mix of essential thrombocythemia, polycythemia, variant myelofibrosis patients. A lot of patients reported phlebotomies, changing MPN medications over time, bone marrow biopsies, transfusion, unplanned hospital stay, even blood clots and bleeding. In general, if, if anyone's interested, feel free to always contact us, but um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Sherber. That was very comprehensive and really excellent um, addressing um, myeloproliferative neoplasms and really all the new information that's out there. So please, everyone, take that back to your treating healthcare team. That's so useful and wonderful update. Thank you. And our last, but hardly our least, last speaker is Dr. Um, Gregory Daniels. Dr. Daniels is Clinical Professor of Medicine, Morris USD Cancer Center, VA San Diego Healthcare System. I have to say uh, a great thank you to Dr. Um, Daniels because he will be addressing updates from ASCO on melanoma, but then he will, at the end of the call, do a bit of a wrap-up of really what was discussed um, on today's program. So um, you're really in for a very special treat. So I'm going to turn this program over now to Dr. Daniels. And thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. Thank you, Caroline. And um, thank you, everybody, who stayed on the call and uh, participated in a, in a really exciting summary of uh, what's happened in the last year. And as Caroline mentioned, I'll, I'll focus on melanoma first. And uh, first, the bad. Uh, skin cancer rates in the U.S. as all over the world uh, continue to increase. That's melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancers, and it's uh, impacting all age groups. And so um, I think this theme of um, cancer and uh, getting some handle on this is, is even more important uh, uh, these days as, as unfortunately cancer seems to touch our lives all the time. And I'm going to reflect back just for a second on the last decade in um, melanoma. When um, I first got into the field of melanoma, the tools were, were relatively limited. It was uh, chemotherapy, uh, with the exception of an immune therapy called interleukin-2. And what attracted me to melanoma was the idea of immune therapy in cancer. This, this is not my idea. This is um, a field that's been developing for uh, literally more than 120, 150 years. Um, but we'd had difficulty in trying to apply our knowledge of the immune system and how it worked in terms of uh, vaccines and disease pre prevention to really uh, getting an effective cancer uh, therapy. That was first broken, in my mind, really with the application of interleukin-2 in uh, kidney cancers and melanoma and pioneering work by Steve Rosenberg at the uh, NCI. And uh, what you've noticed on this call is the whole field has moved forward with um, an understanding of the genomic requirements that uh, tumors are changing inside themselves to spur their growth, as well as trying to get at the outside of what's going on in the tumor, what we call the microenvironment which is where the action is uh, for the immune system. And this, over the last 10 years, has really led to a dramatic change in, in the tools available uh, for treatment. Specifically in melanoma, I'll start with uh, adjuvant treatments. Adjuvant treatments are 
most patients with melanoma uh, present either they've noticed a skin lesion changing or uh, a loved one has noticed something and said, hey, go get that checked out. The, the lesion is biopsied, found to be a melanoma, and then steps happen to remove the melanoma. Some of the patients, however, are counseled that they have a high risk of uh, melanoma coming back and they meet a medical oncologist to talk about what's called adjuvant treatment. And uh, before, in the decades past, um, we'd applied a drug called interferon, which had a low um, value for patients, um, meaning that it was relatively toxic and provided minimal benefit, not zero, but minimal. Thankfully, uh, that started to change with the introduction of uh, ipilimumab into adjuvant treatment, where we saw an improvement in overall survival for patients that was clearly demonstrated. And then uh, quickly thereafter, uh, data came out with uh, nivolumab, a PD-1 inhibitor. And by the way, I might r refer to these drugs as PD-1 inhibitors and not their specific names, such as Keytruda, Pembrolizumab, or Optivo, Nivolumab, because there are now uh, literally uh, about 10 PD-1 inhibitors coming onto the market not just in melanoma, but all sorts of cancers, and really provides a backbone for immune therapies in, uh, in uh, cancer therapy right now. So these PD-1 inhibitors uh, were introduced in the adjuvant setting and shown to also improve outcomes, but with lower toxicity, which is a theme that's developing throughout these uh, presentations you'll hear is that while things are getting better in terms of killing the cancer, we're also getting better at uh, hurting patients less as our therapies become more targeted and uh, less toxic. In adjuvant treatment for melanoma, um, the targeted therapies also gain traction. We have um, about half the patients uh, with melanomas of the skin type have BRAF mutations that are the switches that turn on the cancer. And it turns out that high-risk patients, so stage three, even resected stage fours, um, but the studies were done in stage threes, appear to benefit from early introduction of a BRAF inhibitor if they have one of these switches uh, that turn on, um, turn on the cancer. So where are we going in, uh, in adjuvant treatment? I think it's going to be really exciting to see if we can uh, do less with more, meaning uh, in stage three, as we've refined our staging criteria and become better at picking out who's at higher risk and lower risk, uh, we can see that patients, for example, with very small amounts of tumor in the lymph node may not uh, be uh, well served by giving them adjuvant treatment up front. So these are what we call stage 3As. There's a subset of stage 3As that we can pick out that have um, survivals that are that are excellent and may not need the additional treatments that come, obviously, with some toxicity. On the flip side, uh, stage twos, which currently don't have um, good adjuvant treatment options, they're also being now looked at in clinical trials to better define um, potentially both targeted therapies and an ongoing study looking at uh, PD-1 blockade in uh, stage two patients. So get. This will ultimately get at the idea of can we pick out these patients as early as possible and give them effective treatments to avoid later complications or even have treatments working better 
in the early stage than in the later stage. So attachment treatment is a very exciting uh, area right now. Surgery, which as I mentioned, most patients uh, with melanoma present with, uh, with surgery as a curable option, has also undergone some changes over the last uh, year or two. And uh, data updated at ASCO, um, specifically in the sentinel lymph node positive patients, um, helped clarify what we should be doing with, these, with uh, this group of patients. Sentinel lymph nodes have always helped us um, in terms of prognostics for patients. That's helping predict the risk of recurrence uh, for patients. But it's been controversial about how much additional surgery following that uh, sentinel lymph node is for patients' outcomes. Well, um, we had both the U.S. and then a European study uh, this last year show us that it appears that patients who have only microscopic positive lymph nodes on sentinel, on sentinel lymph node evaluation do not benefit from additional surgery. And this is a huge change for us. Uh, before, patients uh, would go on to large resections of uh, what we call nodal uh, beds of lymph nodes, where all the lymph nodes would have to be removed from under the arm. This has consequences for the, for the patients in terms of morbidity. Um, and so now, in most cases, this appears that we can avoid it in those patients with just a microscopically involved uh, lymph node. So that's great news. The other thing that's happening is the melding of adjuvant therapy and surgery in what we call neoadjuvant treatment. And here, uh, early studies are, are suggesting that if we introduce immune therapies or targeted therapies before surgery in patients who obviously need a surgical resection, that treatment early helps us uh, do several things. One, uh, predict who's going to respond to our treatments so we get an immediate uh, indication by how the patient's responding. It also allows us uh, to potentially offer uh, patients less surgery and or have less complications for surgery. So neoadjuvant treatment, there were several small studies presented at ASCO uh, examining this in melanoma. So uh, I think this is a very promising area more to come. In advanced disease, I already mentioned that the field's uh, really grown up from the time of chemotherapy through IL-2, ipilimumab in 2010-2011, on to the checkpoints uh, of PD-1 uh, with pembrolizumab and nivolumab, and then the combination therapies. And so um, there's been just this fast forward of improved response rates and working on toxicities on the immune side, as well as on the targeted therapy side. And at ASCO, um, the big question that uh, the field has is, okay, that was good, but can we do better? Because there's still a group of patients out there that don't uh, get that long-term benefit we all strive for after these treatments. And so several, um, not just several, uh, many um, presentations focused on what happens after progressing on a PD-1 inhibitor. And two general um, themes emerge here, and one is, well, if you have a PD-1 inhibitor that's uh, working, like Pembro or Nevo, you can add therapies to it. And so there are trials looking at adding CTLA-4, um, which is ipilimumab, uh, to uh, patients who are progressing on one immune therapy to add an, a second one. Um, and responses were seen. Can we 
go after the tumor directly. Um, interesting study looking at intratumoral additions such as electroporation of interleukin-12 uh, containing DNA into tumor or even other checkpoints, novel checkpoints such as LAG3. So one theme was to add to a backbone of the PD-1 blockade. The other was to um, jump ship altogether and stop the PD-1 and take, for example, adding in ipilimumab with an injection into the tumor. And uh, data was presented looking at ipilimumab and uh, already approved intratumoral injection, and that's TVEC or MLIGEC. And uh, there the response rates appeared to uh, improve from ipilimumab alone. I'll also call out another approach that, uh, going back to Steve Rosenberg and uh, all his decades of work at the NCI, has been cell therapy. And cell therapy has been limited to a select group of patients and a select group of institutions. However, there are now clinical trials that are offering cell therapy at a broader range of institutions because um, the trials are focusing on centralizing uh, uh, cell preparation and getting this uh, treatment out potentially to a, a broader group. So really some exciting changes in, in, uh, in melanoma as we continue to refine what we understand about what's going on inside the cell as well as outside the cell. And I'll, I'll kind of shift into my wrap-up mode because that's the general theme of uh, all these presentations. You know, the field is really working hard. I, you know, I applaud all my colleagues um, for putting in the time for the call because I know they all have busy practices and busy research programs. And to work day in and day out in science is usually a slow, pedantic um, march forward. I think, though, really over the last year, science is also punctuated by some occasional eurekas. And the field of oncology has really experienced that eureka moment um, this last few years with uh, understanding the, the genomics. Um, and some of this has been brought about by really the, the fast forward in technology to allow us to sequence um, the genome of the, of the tumor as well as the patient, to look at gene expression in the cells, and to really molecularly dissect out those switches in the cell and then turn it around and screen for compounds that turn off those switches. So huge, huge change. But if that one eureka is not enough, we had two, and that's the immunologic status. Um, the relationship of the tumor um, with the patient. And before, we'd gone through a, a time where we thought that uh, the immune system could be educated to fight the cancer. And we looked at it as, well, we just need to make the immune system aware. It turns out the immune system is well aware that the cancer is there. The eureka moment came in when it turned out that what we need to do is change the regulation between the immune system and the tumor. And it sounds simple uh, to say it that way, uh, but that was, that was a big eureka moment um, uh, that happened a few years back and led to the approval of these uh, checkpoint inhibitors and to give us uh, these two broad new tool pathways of molecular switches and immunologic uh, checkpoints uh, to fight cancer so that the standard of care in all these fields is just rapidly evolving. And there's been 
um, to overuse the word myself, see changes on many fronts, in, including diagnostics that you heard about and uh, lung cancer, um, to now appreciating how even our nutritional um, status and myeloproliferative disorders um, um, interact with our therapies and stuff. So we've gone really from a stone age, um, and I participated in that stone age of um, uh, some tools that we had to really now we're in the Bronze Age. We got there through clinical trials, um, and our focus now is looking towards uh, refining those therapies to improve response rates, decrease toxicities, but also to get to that prevention uh, point and to eliminate cancer as really an um, ongoing problem for society. So I see some, some progress, and I hope you see the hope that uh, uh, we all work towards every day. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was really outstanding. And not only was your presentation outstanding about melanoma, but also the whole wrap-up of the call. And I think for everyone on the call, a sense of hope and eureka, that is so, those words are so powerful for everybody to hear. So thank you so much. And thank you for staying the course with us and doing this. Um, and, and just in wrapping this up, I do want to let you all know that this program, this two-part series, will be turned into a booklet and you'll all be getting the booklet. It usually takes a few months for that booklet to be compiled, so please do stay tuned, but you will all get that booklet. And also, um, I do want to just review with you very briefly the services that you can access from Cancer Care. Um, Cancer Care is, offered, is a national organization, and we offer services to people uh, nationally, both practical and financial assistance. And throughout the world, we do offer counseling services, both on the telephone and online, um, you can contact Cancer Care by calling 1-800-813-4673, or you may visit our website at www.cancercare.org. You can post a question there. One of our social workers will get back to you. We also have over 120 support groups, online support groups. I'm sorry, 120 online support groups, and they keep growing in numbers on all different types of cancers um, for patients, for caregivers. We have caregiving groups, young adult groups, um, so we have groups on many different topics, and you can access that information from our website, and that's a very a very large and growing program. We also, of course, offer these workshops, and indeed, I just want to remind all of you that we do have a workshop coming up in October, and it's very relevant to our program today. It's called Genomics and the Future of Cancer Treatment, the October 15th, and you'll be getting information about that. Indeed, at the end of the program today, you will be getting an evaluation form, but in that evaluation, you'll see all the programs we have coming up, and you'll also see any of the references that speakers may have mentioned during the call um, in terms of resources for you to be able to access. That's really important for all of you to have. We do have very robust publications department and fact sheets also, and we do have programs for older adults, for children and teens and young adults, and everyone else in between. We do have our services apply to all ages, um, and either a person with cancer or their loved ones, caregivers, partners, um, and significant others. Um, and even colleagues in the workplace. So indeed, our services are for everyone who's impacted by cancer in some way. Um, I do want to thank you all for being on this call today. Um, this has been really one of the most amazing. We've done this call every year, but I would say that this particular program today and this whole two-part series has been really quite phenomenal in terms of the information. You can listen to the program again if you wish to. Um, it's available on telephone replay and as a podcast. Uh, it, I would give it about two days for the podcast to come up on the website, and you can listen to it or share it with a friend. Um, so please do that. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you a very fine day. Thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.